Hi everyone, thanks very much for joining us. My name is Will Della. I'm a senior associate in the commercial department in Bird Benz London office, and I also head up our esports and games group. We're here today to talk about fashion and gaming, how those two worlds are colliding, and some of the opportunities and challenges that presents. And I can think of no better person to uh, talk about this topic than Rebecca O'Kelly-Gillard. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to just introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. And thanks for having me, Will. I am a partner in the IP team in London, in Bird and Bird. And I focus on mainly kind of copyright and trademark issues, but with a particular focus of online issues. And more recently with NFTs. And so I think that's why you came knocking on my door, Will, to talk about fashion and gaming and brands and the online world. Precisely. So let's get into it. Will. Why are we here? We're looking at loads of crossover at the moment between fashion and gaming. Can you give us a bit of insight as to what we're seeing in the market? Well, I mean, all sorts of things, really. Particularly in the last 18 months, two years, we've seen fashion brands trying to sort of leverage the uh, the platform that games provide to do all sorts of different things. So we've seen the likes of Louis Vuitton, Gucci put products into games. So they've released actual sort of fashion lines in a digital form in a game like Fortnite or Roblox or, or, or League of Legends. Um, we've also seen fashion brands launch uh, sponsorship arrangements in the context of eSports, that's competitive video gaming. So uh, Gucci is another good example. They did a, a landmark deal with Fnatic recently, but equally Nike have sponsored League of Legends in China. There are all sorts of sponsorships going on in an eSports context with a range of sports brands, but also luxury luxury fashion brands trying to get into to gaming that way. And we've also seen fashion brands actually start to launch their own games in some instance. So Balenciaga, again, another very high end brand, they actually to coincide with the launch of a new product line, they released their own game called Afterworld Age of Tomorrow, which is actually a relatively, despite you might think a relatively sophisticated game talking you know, to, to go along with the launch of their product. Burberry did a similar thing again last year. There's all sorts of different types of ways that fashion brands are trying to get into gaming. What is the attraction? Why do you think they're entering this new market? Well, I think actually outside of the world of fashion, you know, more broadly speaking, I think brands generally are starting to realise that the games audience is a, is a very valuable one. It tends to be a young demographic, an affluent demographic, and one that is increasingly hard to reach via traditional media, traditional sponsorship, traditional advertising. So the games audience is a very engaged one and it's one that's really worth pursuing. And so trying to engage with them at their level on where they are in the gaming world is a great way to get brand exposure and a great way to catch that audience. Second reason is that it could be revenue generating. So to take the example of Gucci putting products into Roblox, they launched, I think it was some handbags and sunglasses on the online marketplace within Roblox. I think they retail for something like $2.50 each or $20 each somewhere on that scale but by the end of the day they were being traded for thousands of dollars and it just shows that there is actually a real market for sort of digital collectible items wearable items skins you know, purely aesthetic items that, that you can sort of brand yourself with in an online world and finally it's worth saying that particularly for luxury fashion brands it's a really great way of being able to engage with a far larger audience on a transactional basis. So if we take that Gucci example, chances are you're not going to be buying that pair of sunglasses for $2.50 if you go into a high street store. So it's a great way of actually establishing a, a sort of transactional relationship with a huge consumer base and then getting them, getting them really sort of integrated into your brand.
Yeah, I think that last point really struck, struck out at me, especially for luxury brands, where if you think traditionally it was all kind of in, in the offline world and it was kind of elitist and, and, and trying to protect the cachet of the brand. And so it was the luxury store, the Vogue magazine, the runway shows, all of which target or are only accessible to a very small number of people. And then if you take the pandemic and the inability to actually access those brands through some of those methods your market has shrunk again that the cachet and the elitism of the brand hasn't but the accessibility of it to people has and so the ability to you know advertise if nothing else to 99 million people at a at a competition is just mind-boggling for some of those more traditional luxury brands who might not have experienced that before Absolutely. And I think um, also, I mean, you make a good point about the pandemic being a real catalyst for all of this. And I mean, take an example, like there's a there's a sort of an app game called Dressed, which is where they have avatars of famous supermodels and you can dress them in various different sort of luxury couture in various different sort of scenarios and then share your creation with the community who then rate it and score it and I think you can win prizes etc so that's another example of sort of the gamification of the fashion industry brought about by or or rather perhaps accelerated by the pandemic now all of this obviously throws up myriad legal issues which is part of the reason why why we're here and it's probably worth touching on IP in the first instance because I mean the fashion industry is very IP rich games are as much if not more and so perhaps let's start talking about some of the IP issues this involves. So from a, if we break it down from a trademark perspective, if you are a, let's take it from the perspective of a, of a fashion brand. If you're, if you're looking to put your products into a game through a partnership arrangement with a, with a games publisher or developer, what sort of things do you need to be thinking about? Sure. Well, one thing I just want to say at the beginning in relation to IP in, in game, in fashion and gaming and the, and the interplay is the law in relation to IP is not going to change no matter what the medium is. So it's not that it's more complicated because you're it's fashion plus gaming. It's just that it throws up ideas that people might not or avenues of exploitation that people might not have thought of before and the mixing of certain worlds. But the underpinning law remains the same. And so it's just applying that law to the new environment in which you're advertising. So, so that's one thing I think is always really helpful for people to bear in mind, whether they're talking about the crossover of these industries or NFTs or the metaverse, the law is always going to be the same underpinning all of it. But to answer your actual question, in relation to trademarks, if I was a fashion brand, what would I do? Well, the very first thing anyone does is look at their trademark portfolio. So what trademarks do you own? Trademarks are registered for what are called goods and services. So you specify what you want to use your trademark for. And if you're a fashion house, you're going to have registered your brand for clothing, footwear, headgear, bags and accessories, perfumes, maybe. But you're probably not going to have registered them for gaming, esports, and that, that new industry into which you're playing. So first of all, you need to make sure that your trademark portfolio is up to date so that it covers this new market that you're entering into. And the reason to do that is that if someone else comes along and starts using your trademark, at least you know that you have a claim against them and it's supported by your trademark portfolio. So it'll be much easier to protect your rights 
in this new gaming environment, which might not have been your traditional market. And then it really just comes down to, to licensing arrangements. One thing I would just say is you need to choose your game. You know, you need to choose what your target audience is because the whole point of getting into this is for people to engage with your brand, like you were talking about skins or, you know, sunglasses, to enable avatars or characters to wear this elite brand. And you're going to want to just be slightly cautious as to whether the ethos or the reputation of the game in which with which you are dealing mirrors the company's own image and ethos so that you can have some level of comfort that the way that your brand is going to be represented within the game is not adverse to your ethics and therefore could cause you reputational damage so if a game is you know a very violent game is that something that you want to be getting involved in if your brand wants to be squeaky clean and that's why i think very different games have very different companies that have got involved with them so that is just kind of a slightly more reputational issue to just bear in mind and then really you're just talking about licensing what way do you want your brand to be represented within the game what type of offline interaction do you want with the game and how are you going to approach that? And could it spill into not just online merchandise, but also offline merchandise as well? Brilliant, thank you. And I think, I mean, it might be that actually there's not much more to say on it, but from a copyright perspective, I mean, particularly games are, are complex from a copyright perspective in that there's you know, copyright subsists in various different aspects of a game, like, you know, the actual source code itself is a literary work. You've got all the graphic elements, sound recordings, etc. The soundtrack itself. Again, if you are a, if you're looking to enter into a partnership agreement with a games publisher and you're looking to leverage game IP, is it just a matter of getting those licensing terms right and making sure you've got all of those bases covered, or is there anything else to think about? I think when it comes to copyright, it's, it gets slightly more technical, as where I, I would put it. So. If you are creating, you're going to have to interact with the game. So there's going to have to be source code built to permit your fashion brand into the game. So there's going to be a conversation then as to who owns the IP that underpins that source code, because the, the publisher is going to want to own the entire game ecosystem. And so all software and source code related to the, the game, and that will include how your brand is created within that game and that means as a fashion company you're going to have to give up some unless you have very strong bargaining power give up some ip where someone is creating source code that relates to your trademark but you are not going to own that source code and so that takes an element of trust in and of itself then following on from that you're going to need an awful lot of cross licensing so you're going to have to license them to your trademark to enable them to create that branding within their source code. Equally, you are going to want to promote that interactivity outside of the gaming world. And so the publisher is going to have to license you some of the copyright works to enable you to advertise your connection with them in the offline world. So that could be that could enable a, a cross licensing of the source code itself to enable you to kind of create spin-offs in some manner 
or it could just be stills of the game or or clips of the game and how your brand is represented within that game. So you need to constantly be thinking about what is the use in the game and what IP do you need to cover that in-house use and who's going to own that IP. But then also what do both companies want to do outside of the game in terms of promotional activity and, and the creation of, as we said, let's say there's, you know, a, a item of clothing that's been created in game, but then you create a, a physical version of it, then you're going to want to make sure that all rights in relation to that article of clothing are covered off. That could include if the so I'm thinking that the acronym making the jacket for Death Stranding and 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 creating that in real life so it could be that there's IP related to the jacket when it was just in the in-game world so then what IP does acronym need to license from the publisher in order to create that jacket and then who's going to own the IP in the real life jacket is it going to be the publisher or is it going to be acronym are you going to um, register any designs in relation to that jacket or are you going to simply protected by our unregistered designs and, and copyright. And so it's those kind of things that you need to think through all the permutations of all of the IP that exists, both in the real world and in the in the game. I mean, it's actually you mentioned designs. That was going to be the, the, the next and sort of final sort of type of IP that I was going to uh, ask you about. And you sort of caught it at the end, but just to elaborate on that more, going the other way, if you're a gaming brand, and you go right whether it's as part of a partnership arrangement with a fashion brand or not you go right i'm going to start creating some apparel mm -hmm. and some footwear or whatever else it might be from a design rights perspective is there anything again that you need to be thinking of proactively or or not particularly it depends on what you see the longevity of the clothing line being is is i would say the kind of the first consideration so if it's going to be just fast fashion, then generally unregistered designs last sufficiently long, you know, three years or so, um, depending on, on jurisdiction. And so that could be perfectly long enough to cover the lifespan of the marketing and launch of this apparel and the kind of zeitgeist around it um, and people wanting to be making counterfeits and things. And so if you are involved in kind of fast fashion, then you probably don't need to worry about registering designs. If, however, this is going to be an iconic piece that, you know, could become culturally very significant for a considerable amount of time, then you might want to register designs. You also, in the back of that, you also have protection of copyright. So there could be copyright in the design anyway. So, you know, designs aren't necessarily the be all and end all. But it's certainly something that you should consider if it's going to be a kind of long lasting piece or is very culturally significant. Brilliant. Just to round off this sort of IP theme, obviously within the fashion world, counterfeits is a, is a real problem in, in when you're making real world products, let's say. But do similar or different considerations apply when you're creating items to be distributed online? I think there's a weird issue around counterfeits for gaming because if you take a lot of the examples we've given about fashion and gaming have been around luxury brands and sometimes luxury brands in in the offline world so you know going talking about shops and and, and physical products 
they don't necessarily like if I'm Louis Vuitton, I don't necessarily care about a fake LV bag being sold for 20 quid because all consumers are going to know that is not an authentic Louis Vuitton bag. I do care about a counterfeit Louis Vuitton bag being sold for a grand because consumers might be duped into believing they're buying an authentic product, spending huge amounts of money, but actually not getting the real thing. So the the weird thing about um, fashion and gaming is, I mean, when you launch a product, so taking your sunglass example, when they launched for, you know, $1.50, $2.50, but then being sold at the end of the day for $1,500, the world of counterfeiting becomes a lot more complicated because what do you go after? If other counterfeit sunglasses are available for a dollar, do you care because, you know, it's not going to impact that much on your bottom line now? But if it's going to be sold as an NFT, and there are significant resale values, then it could have considerable impact for you commercially going forward. So it's going to be difficult to decide where to start policing counterfeits. And then the other difficulty is going to be, how do you police counterfeits? There's a lot of technology that exists for detecting counterfeit goods online. So when I'm talking about websites, social media, online marketplaces. And there are very sophisticated pieces of software where you can find misuse of your trademark and then you can take action and have physical products taken down so they can't be sold. But when you're talking about in-game counterfeits, how do you police that? The ecosystem or the environment of the game is controlled by the publisher. So how do you identify counterfeits within the game? I mean, you can you can identify counterfeits being sold outside of the game for use within the game in the same way that you will be able to identify counterfeit shoes or counterfeit handbags because they're advertised online. And so you can find them that way. But once they're in the game, how do you detect them? And it might put an onus on auditing rights, for example. Do publishers need to keep track of the amount of sunglasses in the game so that that can then be squared against the actual sales that have been made of those sunglasses and and then you you see that there's an anomaly between those two numbers but how you actually police that in game um is is going to be tricky absolutely so so thinking about a lot of these collaborations that we've been discussing well if we're talking about kind of mix of a brand partnership it's generally done kind of in a, in a sponsorship capacity or, you know, thinking kind of traditionally, you know, the name of a company on a on a football player's jersey. You know, it's a sponsorship type of arrangement. So if I'm a fashion brand getting into the gaming world for the first time, there's going to be a few different types of contracts that you could enter into. And the first is with the actual publisher itself, you know, the, the game developer. So if I'm looking as a fashion brand to have an agreement with a game publisher, developer, what are the kind of things that I should be flagging up in my contract? Well, I mean, you actually, you touched on the first thing to do earlier on, we were talking about IP and that's due diligence. So you have to really get a proper understanding of the game itself. So a lot of this is commercial, but a lot of it's actually to protect yourself legally. So who is the user base for that game? Where are they? Is it the type of game I feel comfortable being associated with? And you might actually try to put provisions in the contract to give you some protection there so that if particularly if it's if it's a long term partnership, say a three or four year partnership, that the game won't be developed or iterations or updates to it won't be developed 
that are going to compromise your brand at all. So the first part of it is due diligence, which again, like I said, you, you touched a lot of the detail that earlier. The second thing you might be concerned about is exclusivity. This will obviously depend a lot on what's been negotiated commercially, but particularly as games like Fortnite, Roblox, etc., are there are myriad brand partnerships going on. So you know, you see Mark Jacobs and Gucci putting apparel into Animal Crossing. Uh, we've seen Nike and several several luxury brands putting putting clothes into Fortnite. Riot Games have done tie-ups with the likes of Louis Vuitton for League of Legends, and 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 it's you wonder with some of those brands what level of exclusivity they would require. So if it is just a licensed product deal, so all the deal is about is just putting putting a limited range of products into a game, you might get limited exclusivity. But actually, if it's a more comprehensive brand partnership that comes with sponsorship rights um, or the right to brand certain elements of the game, that's where you might start to get quite concerned about other brands encroaching into your space or, or ambushing your rights. and and leveraging the fact that you've spent you know potentially quite a lot of money or invested quite a lot of time or, or product development into making the the partnership a reality so exclusivity could be a big point the third big thing to consider and, and again it comes out of the ip discussion really is around licensing terms so what are you licensing into the game what 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 ip are you licensing in for what duration and what territories what sort of warranties and indemnities if any are you willing to give Part of that, again, will be tied up into your trademark portfolio. So what sort of protections do you already have for your brand when you're putting it into a game? And then vice versa, you'll want to know that when you are, um, presumably you'll want to use some uh, images, footage from the game and potentially other other IP as well to, to activate the partnership and for advertising purposes. And what sort of licensing terms are you going to get that from the applicable publisher or developer? So that all needs to be ironed out in, in considerable detail. And the final thing I'd probably say that you wouldn't want to overlook is approvals. So when you are in a, particularly if it's in a traditional partnership or sponsorship capacity, and you are uh, licensing a brand in, it can be fairly easy to, to envisage what the brand will look like once it's put in situ, because it's just applying a logo to a sort of static board or putting it into an advert. And it's, it, it's fairly easy to, to, to comprehend where it might be used. But actually, in a games concept context, you can do all sorts of things within a game and trying to make sure you have comprehensive approvals in place to ensure that you you are comfortable with how your brand is being represented. So and there are all there, there are sort of a million different ways to skin the cat when it comes to approvals, but th that's the basic concept you're trying to break in. And equally, you know, vice versa, if you're a publisher or developer, you want to make sure that you're your general business activities don't become so hamstrung by having to get approvals that actually it becomes difficult for you to operate the game in a sort of in a sensible way. So those are the few of the things that sort of I'd be specifically concerned about in a fashion context beyond the sort of standard things that you look for in a partnership or, or sponsorship arrangement. And I guess so a lot of that and actually what we've been talking about in general is in relation to the use of a fashion brand within a game. But obviously in gaming, there's this whole other area and that's team and esports. And so a lot of fashion um, brands haven't just been looking about placing their brands within a game, but they've also been trying to be associated with games and associated with teams and leagues. So how if I want to get into that side of things and I want to be involved in esport team sponsorship what kind of thing should I be looking at for that kind of a contract 
The first is actually is probably a slightly more expanded due diligence exercise because typically the, the sorts of teams that would attract major sponsorship will be active across multiple games. So you're actually expanding that due diligence exercise to say, right, well, if I'm going to sponsor these guys, am I com comfortable sponsoring them across the full suite of games that they're involved in? Or actually, do I only want to make sure that I'm associated with games A, B, C and not D, E and F because D, E and F are games that don't really fit within my, my sort of sweet spot or actually could alienate my fan base because, as you say, they're sort of blood and guts or, or, or otherwise unsuitable for, for my sort of customer base. There's that expanded due diligence exercise. You've then got to be particularly careful around warranties and indemnities for IP because if you are looking to leverage game assets but via an esports team, there's one step removed from the chain and that you're not getting this or you're not necessarily getting a direct license from the game publisher or developer whose IP you're trying to leverage. So that is trying to just make sure, again, being extra cautious when it comes to IP warranties and indemnities. And then this, and this is something which is borrowed from a more sort of traditional sponsorship world, but you are likely to want to do real world product lines in an esports sponsorship because you'll be looking to put your, either put your brand on team's jerseys or apply team branding to your items um so yeah, a limited edition of you know team watches or shoes or whatever it might be so it would actually be doing due diligence on the team's registrations potentially trademark portfolio to make sure that you've got the rights that you need where you're not exposed by putting their brand on your on the power that you're creating one other point to mention as well if you are doing a sponsorship deal with a team which involves activations using players Again, you've got to make sure you get image rights clearances and you might also want to have what's called a morality clause in there. So, and this is designed to give you, the brand, some protection against reputational damage that you suffer due to misdemeanors from players or coaching staff. And that's often one, something which is quite heavily negotiated. Yeah, and I guess from, from just adding from an IP perspective, I think the only reason that there's a, an added level of complexity is because all of the industries involved are very IP rich, but all have slightly different forms of IP that are particularly important to their industry. So the fashion, it's going to be primarily trademarks followed by copyright and design. A publisher is going to be primarily copyright followed by trademarks. And then if you're getting into the esports world and the sponsorship, then you've got slightly more traditional sporting arrangements in terms of player image rights, um, team logos, and, and the interaction with the game. And so it's just trying to marry up each of those different types of IP and making sure that you are licensing the correct IP, but also cross-licensing what you have to the other people to enable them to exploit it to the, to the best of their ability. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And while we're talking about, I mean, I touched on image rights there in the context of players, but even actually thinking about it with a any sort of brand partnership with a games company or, or an, indeed an esports esports organization there is an increasing trend to, to you know, utilize social media influencers to try and activate the partnership and are there any other watch outs that you want to raise from an image rights perspective i think it will depend on who the influencer is so if you're using a team member then there could be contractual arrangements in place with the esports organization. They might have other sponsorship deals with other organizations around exclusivity and, and the boundaries of that. If you're talking about kind of 
traditional influencers, if I can say it that way, so who aren't team members, then it's slightly cleaner in the sense of you're not looking at them within a larger structure. And so there are probably going to be less complex contractual hurdles that you need to overcome or consider. And they are by and large probably going to have greater freedom to provide you the rights that you will want to have in order to engage with them fully and in a way that looks organic with their fan base. For team members, it's going to be slightly more restricted and there'll be competing interests and their primary obligations are most likely going to be to the esports organisation rather than to the fashion brand. So they'll just be competing interests. So there is definitely different considerations depending on the type of influencer that you engage with. No, that makes absolute sense. I think it's actually worth saying on the influencer side again as a general watch out and we, we sort of we mention this whenever we use the word influencer but influencer marketing generally is an increasingly regulated area particularly when it comes to things around being transparent around how how brand partnerships are flagged to followers of, of influencers so always something to be to be mindful of and potentially to put in place contractual protections to account for absolutely and i just add to that that obviously with real life humans you never know what they're going to get involved with and so there's always a reputational risk involved using influencers but let's not forget we're dealing with the gaming world so there's no reason why an influencer couldn't be a character or an avatar or someone that exists in the metaverse which is entirely controllable so so maybe there's a benefit in uh, not just thinking about real world influencers but thinking of uh, characters and uh, influencers within the games themselves. Very good point. And finally, we couldn't do this and not say anything about <laughs> NFTs. And I mean, it's a big topic. We haven't got the time and anything to delve into it in too much detail. But, and again, I'm thinking about this, particularly from a fashion brand's perspective, assuming that, you know, not all, but a lot of games companies will, will have explored NFTs and it might be more familiar territory for them. But if you're a fashion brand and you're considering, as part of your venture into gaming or otherwise, getting into NFTs from an IP perspective, if you were to give just a couple of headline points to, to, to consider, what would those be? So again, NFTs is slightly different to gaming. So you need to make sure your trademark portfolio is ready to delve into the world of, of NFTs. I would also say that the concept of an NFT is that it is going to be perpetual. So you need to kind of balance the issue between license terms generally being finite or subject to termination. Whereas once an NFT is created, the concept is that it will be there forever and it can be sold on or it might even be able to be adapted, but it is slightly more perpetual. And so you need to consider whether you are willing to go down that route and how that is going to be supported over time. What is going to underpin, what technology is going to underpin it? Have you done your due diligence on the technology provider if the connection between the digital asset and the blockchain, the token, is disrupted in any way and the NFT becomes unavailable, that can cause massive reputational damage for the brand that is associated with the digital asset. So how are you going to assign risk on that? But, but other than that, again, we're just kind of back to the basic concepts of do you have permission to use the trademarks? Is copyright being licensed in the correct way? And who owns that copyright? Is it the blockchain platform operator? Is it the game 
operator? Is it the fashion brand? And then what are the remuneration consequences going to be? And then the one thing I would just flag if you're talking about NFTs in relation to teams and esports organizations. So let's say you're doing a kind of League of Legends greatest hits NFT, but you're showing some players in that that might be permissible because as the tournament organizer, you might own the broadcast rights in that tournament. And so you can create an NFTs using that content. But if you're showing certain players, are you infringing their player image rights? Do you have permission to use them in that context? And not necessarily in the NFT itself, but in the promotion of the NFT and the digital asset, are you highlighting one player over another player? And therefore you're kind of going beyond content of the NFT and the context in which it's originally intended into more promoting the NFT via that player and that could get into image rights issues and and false endorsement passing off type claims. So the other aspect obviously of all of this is that if I'm the purchaser of these NFTs or of these fashion products I'm a consumer and so there's massive implications from a consumer law side of things. So can you give us some perspectives on that, Will? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. And it's often something which is which is overlooked when it comes to talking about NFTs, because people do not to not to downplay the importance of IP, obviously, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> but pe- people obviously major on the IP issues that are involved and they're extremely important. But it is easy, easy to overlook consumer law issues because as you said, a number of people buying these, buying NFTs and, and similar products will be consumers, but they are often complex products with complex terms attached to them. And particularly if you think about it in the context of an NFT, you're buying, you know, you're buying the token, you, know, you might be buying the token outright, but actually you're only getting a license to the, the content which features on it. There might be quite complex terms around the onward sale of the NFT. So depending on the marketplace of which it's sold through or the underlying terms of the smart contract that's embedded within, embedded within it, you might find that if you sell it onto someone else, which is you know one of the most attractive things about an NFT, arguably, you are having to hand over a portion of the fee to the original seller or the person they sold it to or the marketplace. There are things like gas fees, which are often applied to transactions and that go to the provider of blockchain services that, that underpin the token or the platform on which it's sold. So these are complex products and one of the fundamentals of consumer law, at least in the UK and Europe, but also increasingly elsewhere, is to make sure that the terms in which you transact with consumers are clear, transparent and easy to understand. Now, marketing a complex product like that, but making it clear and transparent and easy to understand is is, is not easy, not straightforward. And that is where a lot of, or we foresee potentially a lot of issues for people operating in the NFT space because you could easily get consumer complaints saying that actually I didn't really understand what I was purchasing or there were all sorts of hidden terms which weren't made clear to me. And if you're a brand, you might think, well, actually, you know, I can deal with your complaint and just issue a refund. But particularly with changes like the omnibus directive coming in in the EU and the potential for even more stringent regulations in the UK, the risk of non-compliance with consumer law could potentially expose you to sort of GDPR level fines. So significant percentages of global turnover have also made it much easier for consumers to enter into class actions to try and take on people who who don't comply with consumer law, organisations that don't comply with consumer law. So it's a real issue and 
if you are entering into an NFT partnership, one thing we would advise is to do some due diligence over and get some contractual protection in relation to compliance with consumer law when it comes to how NFTs or similar products are going to be marketed and sold. And just on that marketing point, it might be good just to kind of mention that in, in December 2021, the ASA said that the marketing of NFTs is going to be a red flag priority issue for them. So if you are in any way advertising any NFTs in this area, then you do need to be really cautious about how you're advertising to make sure that you're compliant with the ASA guidelines. Absolutely. Right. Well, I think that's a sort of whistle-stop tour through a lot of the issues that you would encounter as either a gaming organisation or a fashion organisation trying to do a collaboration in this area. Needless to say, if you have any further questions, comments, queries, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch with Rebecca or I. Um, we do an awful lot, of, an awful lot of work and an awful lot of thinking about the gaming and fashion worlds and how they sort of intermingle. So we're always keen to talk. And thank you very much, Rebecca, for your time. Thank you, Will. It's been fun. Thanks, everybody.